to Little Yo Pod, the All Things Yosemite podcast. I'm your host, Laura Jackson, and after a hiatus of a few months, I'm back to share the things I love most about my home, Yosemite National Park. Today's episode is going to focus on one of the most charismatic creatures, not just in Yosemite, but throughout all of North America. From Canada to Mexico, the monarch butterfly reigns as the most well-traveled member of the Lepidoptera order. These impressive insects can travel thousands of miles every year, migrating north to south, east to west, and back again, chasing temperate climates and food sources for their young. Butterfly enthusiasts from all over the world flock to see roosting sites to witness the mighty travelers resting in eucalyptus groves on the Pacific coast and in groves of Mexico after traveling from as far away as Canada or the Rocky Mountains. It is one of the most impressive migrations for any species, definitely uh, the longest migration of any moth or butterfly, but especially for an insect weighing no more than half a gram. Watching a monarch butterfly in flight, seemingly clumsy and inconcise, one must wonder how such a feat is even possible. The Pacific Crest Trail is a couple hundred miles shorter in its entirety than some monarch migrations, and most people don't complete that even once in their lifetimes. Well, I'll be talking about how monarchs achieve the impossible in just a bit, but first, some monarch facts. Monarchs are members of the Lepidoptera order, which means scale wing, and this order includes all moths and butterflies, and their wings are covered in scales, and they fall off pretty easily, um, which is a defense mechanism. Why you see some butterflies and moths with uh, their wings all tattered? Uh, This adaptation is so that they can slip out of obstacles easily, and uh, specifically like spider webs. So monarchs are large butterflies, they're on the larger side, with a wingspan between three and a half to four inches, so like a small adult-sized palm. And uh, they have beautiful colorations uh, on their wings of black, orange, and white. Um, very, uh, very obvious-looking uh, creature. It's, uh, there's no ambiguity with, with monarchs, you know when you've seen one. Um, monarchs complete a cycle of complete metamorphosis in four stages, from egg to larva to pupae to adult, with the first three stages completed in as little as 25 days in warmer months and up to seven weeks in cooler months. Um, and that difference is pretty huge, since eggs and larvae are especially vulnerable, and the longer the cycle, the higher the chances they won't make it to adulthood. So erratic weather fluctuations can be particularly harmful to this species, especially the ones that are um, laying eggs in the early summer or late spring. Female monarchs can lay up to 500 eggs in a season, and they lay each one individually, uh, so it's a lot of work, secured to the undersides of milkweed leaves. After about a week of developing in the egg, a monarch caterpillar emerges and starts its journey. A journey of eating. Yeah, so it's like that book, right? The Hungry Little Caterpillar. So that little dude's job for the next two to four weeks, depending on weather and food availability, um, is just to eat. And a monarch's ca- a monarch caterpillar's diet consists of pretty much milkweed, uh, milkweed and even more milkweed. So milkweed is a tall, stalk-like flowering plant, and there are, are several species throughout North America. Uh, what we have in Yosemite mostly is showy milkweed and purple milkweed weed and monarchs can eat both but what we mostly have in Yosemite Valley what you'll see walking around here is showy milkweed. Um, Showy milkweed can grow to be quite large. The stalks can be like four feet high or higher with broad fuzzy leaves sort of a pale green like a sage color and the flowers are small and pink with pointy petals that all group together to create a kind of pom-pom looking cluster. They're just beautiful. They don't really look like any other type of plant. Um but they're gorgeous, especially when you get really up close to them and see all the 
intricacies. They're also highly toxic, so don't eat them. Um, <laughs> you will not see any wildlife browsing around milkweed, but you will find plenty of insects, including, including many pollinating insects, um, birds, and uh, shiny blue iridescent milkweed beetles. They actually eat the milkweed and completely can destroy an entire plant. So that's kind of like a... <clears throat> it's native, but it's kind of like a pest. The, toxic the toxicity of the milkweed plant is the single line of defense for monarchs as they eat the milkweed in their larval state, incorporating the toxin into their bodies. That then stays with them even into adulthood as butterflies. Monarchs have uh, aposematic coloring to warn predators of their toxic body content or aposematic uh, coloring. Um, what it means is that it's like kind of a... a warning sign. So that bright orange color is basically a big flashing warning sign to anyone hoping to make a meal out of them. Um, so that's a good defense. A lot of insects, amphibians, and reptiles have similar adaptations. Um, you should think of like the coral snake with its red and yellow banding to warn predators of their highly venomous bites. Um, and then there are some species that mimic those colorings too here in Yosemite. We don't have coral snakes, but we have king snakes that look very similar. Um, but they're their coloration is like mimicking the coral snake. They're actually not um, not dangerous though. But monarchs uh, definitely have that that toxin incorporated into their body. So a lot of uh, predators will stay away from them. And if they make the mistake of eating them, um, sometimes they'll you know they'll avoid them later on uh, because they they know that like if it didn't kill them, it's definitely going to make them super sick to eat them. So they don't make that mistake twice. Uh, so once a monarch caterpillar has eaten enough milkweed and reached the end of its larval stage, it moves on to the pupil, pupal <laughs> stage, and uh, or chrysalis stage. And, and this is where it gets pretty weird. Um, so just imagine this caterpillar, this little chunk dude, um, the pretty chubby with yellow and white stripes with its little face and antenna, just going merrily along, noshing away on milkweed all day. And then one day, instead of eating, it decides it needs to go find a nice, quiet place to settle down. So it crawls over to some hidden spot away from all the noise and builds a little silk, like, um, I don't know, it's like a little dangly silk pad to attach itself to. And then it hangs upside down from that attachment point for about 12 hours. It hangs in the shape of a J, so that it kind of crooked. And then suddenly the caterpillar straightens itself out. And then seconds later, the back of its head just completely splits open. And the split continues like down the length of its entire body. Um, and what comes out is just this green mass, like this blob. Um, this is the chrysalis that will now be its home. It's like, nope, don't like that skin anymore. I'm just going to rip this one off and start over. And I always thought that monarchs spun a, a chrysalis around themselves or spun a cocoon, but it's actually just them. Like they make their own cocoon basically um, by shedding their exoskeleton. And then they have a new exoskeleton, which is that green chrysalis looking thing. At first, uh, it looks kind of amorphous and you can still sort of see the resemblance of the caterpillar with the stripes and everything. Um, but soon it all kind of contracts into a nice compact bluish green package. Um, and that's where the caterpillar would complete its transformation to butterfly. And this happens within two weeks span, give or take. By the time the butterfly is ready to emerge, the exoskeleton around the chrysalis turns transparent. You can actually see the colors and patterns of the butterfly contained within. So that orange and black and white uh, is starting to show through. And eventually, uh, the monarch butterfly breaks free from the exoskeleton. 
Um, they just break right out of there. They hang out for a while. They kind of flex their wings. They fill up their wings with fluid and air. They let them dry out a bit. And, um, yeah, and then they just take flight uh, as adults. The monarch butterfly has now entered its final life stage as an adult. And uh, now they are free to feed on nectars from various flowering plants, including but not limited to milkweed, and hopefully mate and lay uh, hundreds of eggs in the process. If it's a female, of course. Here in the western United States, monarch butterflies begin their migration west of the Rocky Mountains to the central and southern coasts of California. But let's start from their wintering site first, since that's where the generational cycle begins. So monarchs leave their winter homes on the coast in February or March and head inland toward the Central Valley and eventually like as far north as Washington and over to Nevada um, the neighboring states. So this is the first generation of the new cycle um, aligning with the new year, um, beginning in early spring. The second and third generations, um, those are hatched in and around the Central Valley and the other parts that they've uh, migrated to um, within the Western United States. And really their only job, the second and third generation monarchs, is to reproduce. So they don't live very long. They only live about two to five weeks. Um, and then the fourth generation hatches in late summer and they can live up to nine months. And these are the migrators. So the migrating monarchs do not sexually mature until spring of the following year. And they move from their inland homes, uh, to wherever, you know, they, they hatched from to temperate coastal groves of cypress and eucalyptus and pine. Uh, sometimes thousands of monarchs will pile onto a single branch in their overwintering site. And this is what attracts tourists and researchers, um, and, you know, people that are researching butterfly populations. These groves are also, so they're good indicators of populations since they're all kind of, like all the butterflies are kind of mashed into the same spot together. So it's very obvious to see differences from one year to the next as far as their population goes. Eastern monarch populations traveling from Canada to Mexico follow the same um, pattern as far as the generations go, but since the journey is longer, the second and third generations, they actually do a bit of migrating themselves more so than the Western monarchs. Um, and so they're actively migrating north before they die. And then the fourth generation uh, from up in Canada, the migrators also called the super generation. This one generation of butterflies can complete the entire migration um, from north to south. So like from Canada to Mexico. So thousands of miles in one go. So basically an insect weighing a half a gram completes a migration of over 2,000 miles in a matter of months. Um, that's like an individual butterfly. And even with the break in generations, they always make it to the same place year after year. So it's actually kind of a mystery <laughs> as to how they do that. But we assume it's wholly instinctual since the behavior is not passed down generationally. They're not making the same trip back and forth each time. There's different butterflies each time. So some theories suggest um, they're following like the sun as a compass, uh, following the position of the sun and its connection to their circadian rhythm. Um, other theories suggest they use the Earth's magnetic field in some way or maybe a combination of the two. But again, no one's really sure. And uh, research is ongoing, um, but nothing is, nothing's been conclusive yet. So it's still a mystery. One thing that is certain is that these little athletes are tenacious, but very vulnerable. Over the years, we've seen drastic declines in the number of monarch butterflies reaching their winter destinations. Some years, the number is so shockingly low that full extinction of the monarch butterfly seemed to be imminent. Um, in 2015, the Department of Fish and 
wildlife discovered that nearly a billion monarchs were no longer making it to their overwintering sites um, since the year 1990. Uh, So a loss of over a billion of these butterflies. On the California coast, a decline of 86% uh, as of 2018 was seen with numbers of monarchs dropping from the millions to the thousands in many places. And some common overwintering sites saw no monarchs um, some years at all. So... Uh, The same is true for eastern migrations, their numbers dropping alarmingly by 90% since 1995. So we can point our finger at many reasons for this decline, including natural predation, climate change, loss of wintering habitat. But by and large, the reason we are losing monarchs is due to the loss of milkweed. Um, There are a few examples of a species so inextricably linked to another species as monarchs are to milkweed. Monarch caterpillars feed exclusively on milkweed and there can be no substitute. So if there's no milkweed, there are no monarchs. Milkweed, however, is not a plant loved by farmers or big agriculture. It's considered an invasive weed. I mean, it's right there in the name. Uh, Milkweed likes to grow in disturbed soil, like recently plowed soil, and is a hardy plant, can readily take uh, take over an area if given the opportunity. So a lot of measures have been taken to eradicate milkweed from farmlands, including the use of highly toxic herbicides and the common practice now of growing herbicide-resistant genetically modified crops. The Midwest uh, has lost millions of acres of milkweed habitat over the last century, and the same goes for California's Central Valley. I mean, 200 years ago, the valley was mostly marshy wetlands and meadows, and now it's just miles of farmland. Um, The only wetlands are really like preserves that have been set aside specifically for migrating bird species. So you have to imagine there are going to be species impacted from such a change. Still, considering the drastic decline, monarchs are not listed as an endangered species. The Department of Fish and Wildlife declared in December 2020 that monarchs are indeed endangered, but they just don't have enough resources to devote their Uh, to their protection, at least that's what they're going with. So that means that it's up to us as individuals and communities to make sure that these butterflies are still around for years to come. So how does Yosemite play into all of this? Well, as a national park, we are a small example of mostly preserved and protected wilderness. So we act as refugia for many species, including at-risk and endangered species losing their homes and habitats um, pretty much everywhere else. Development is truly the enemy for plants and animals that have relied on the same places and natural cycles for millennia. And until recently, Yosemite wasn't really doing that great a job at providing refuge for those species either. At the turn of the 19th to 20th century, meadows of Yosemite Valley were plowed and built on to support structures, livestock grazing, and farming and orchards. It's hard to believe that now the flourishing Cook's Meadow was at one time covered in cow manure and trampled pretty much to nothing, and sheep herding was a big problem here as well. The meadows are the star players here for many species, but especially the monarchs, because that's where the milkweed likes to live. So over the past decade, massive efforts have been made to restore our meadows to their vital states. Um, The Park Service has been digging out trenches in the meadows to collect and distribute snowmelt. They've been removing non-native species and, and their seeds. Imagine the tediousness of seed collection, but it is being done. Um, and they've been revegetating uh, once all those processes are complete. They've been revegetating with na- native species, including showy milkweed. A lot of this effort is funded by the Park Service, but it's also funded by the nonprofit, the Yosemite Conservancy, uh, who I used to work for. A good organization. Um, bring lots of money to Yosemite. And, uh, and much of the work is done by the Park Service and volunteers as well. 
Today, as you walk through Cook's Meadow, you find hundreds of milkweed plants shooting up from the grasses and attracting all kinds of pollinators, including monarch butterflies. I first noticed the difference this year, the summer of 2022. For years, I have been walking the floor of Yosemite Valley and was lucky to catch even a glimpse of a single monarch once a year. And there were some years I didn't even see any. And I'm pretty sure that time tracked alongside the drought of 2011 to 2016, which is kind of when their numbers got to their lowest. But this year is totally different. Admittedly, I don't make it out to the meadow as often as in recent years since I have a desk job now, but the few times I have been out there, I've been surprised to see monarch after monarch flitting around the meadows and the milkweed. I see no fewer than five to seven individual monarchs on every walk through Cook's Meadow these days. I know that may not seem like much, but compared to the years when I didn't see any, it's absolutely thrilling to see those gorgeous orange wings lighting up the landscape. I've even been lucky to get close enough to snap some photos this year. Honestly, I thought monarchs were circling the drain, and just three years ago, I would not have been surprised to never see another one in the wild again. Yet, here they are. Their will to survive is stronger than I gave them credit for, but who was I to ever judge a delicate insect that travels thousands of miles on its own wings to get to its favorite eucalyptus grove? All that being said, monarchs are not out of the woods yet. Seeing their small comeback fills me with hope, but I know this fight is far from over for them, and really, if we don't create more habitat for the butterflies outside of Yosemite and other protected places, they may not make it much longer as a species. We need milkweed, and lots of it, and we need to make sure we are keeping ourselves aware of the impacts of climate change on monarchs and on every species, including our own. Drought and erratic weather patterns drastically affect milkweed production and migration routes, and while a lot of that may be out of our immediate control, we can and must take steps to mitigate climate effects down the road. We need to think of species conservation and the well-being of our planet as a marathon and not a sprint. Our immediate need for gratification will not be met with the changes we make today, but we will be rewarded eventually. It's important also that we instill these values in the up-and-coming generations, since they are the ones um, who are dealing with the repercussions of our actions, and they are the ones who will be making all the decisions for us one day. I mean, I grew up in a monarch migration route, which is why I think they're so dear to me. I remember them from my childhood, and I really still want that experience for kids today. If you want to see monarchs in Yosemite, I recommend heading to Cook's Meadow right near the visitor center in Yosemite Valley, or you can access the meadow from near the lower Yosemite Falls shuttle stop. You can also join a ranger or park partner-led naturalist walk into the meadow. Just be sure to stop by the visitor center or consult your handy Yosemite guide newspaper for more information uh, for how to register for those. Um, the best time of year for monarch spotting is summertime. Uh, as I record this, it's July, so June and July are going to be the high times when milkweed, milkweed is blooming and when you'll be sure to see monarchs. Um, just make sure when you're visiting our meadows to stay on the designated paths and boardwalks. Even if you see a trail cutting through the meadow, those are highly damaging, and the Park Service is trying to eradicate them, but people keep trampling on them anyway, even when they put up barriers, which is pretty absurd. So just in case you're wondering, those are not designated trails. Just please stay off of them so those social trails can rehabilitate back to meadow. Um, if they don't, then all the water from the meadow just drains straight out through those social trails and never reaches it to the other parts. So then the meadow ends up drying up faster and eventually uh, the forest encroaches in on it. It's like a huge, huge damaging effect. Um, designated trails are either paved or, or boardwalk. So it's very obvious. And if you don't see a paved or raised trail in the meadow, just enjoy uh, from the sideline and bring some binoculars and help educate others if you see them on those social trails. 
If you want to help monarchs at home and you have the space for it, you should consider planting a pollinator garden. Uh, you can research what pollinators visit your area and plant flowers and other plants that may benefit them. If you live somewhere where you get monarchs, plant some milkweed. Be sure to get the right kind of milkweed, though, as some tropical varieties can be toxic to monarchs. So um, if I were you, I would stick with showy milkweed just to be on the safe side. And that's showy, S-H-O-W-Y, milkweed. If you don't have space to plant your own garden, but would still like to help, consider donating to the Yosemite Conservancy to help with restoration projects. Uh, or you can even volunteer for upcoming projects with them that may include revegetating meadows with milkweed and other plants. Um, or you can reach out to your you know, local conservation organizations and see what they're doing for monarchs and butterfly gardens or encourage them to do so. Uh, more information for Yosemite Conservancy um, and those projects can be found on their website, yosemite.org. And I will leave a link for that in today's show notes. As well as, um, I'm going to actually also link a video called Monarchs and Milkweed, part of the Yosemite Nature Notes series. It is literally the video that got me a job as a naturalist in Yosemite. It's so good. I want to thank you for listening to this episode on Monarchs. It has truly been one of the highlights of my year to see those little guys making a small but mighty comeback. And I just had to tell someone about it, other than my friends and loved ones who, frankly, are so kind but are probably tired of seeing my shaky Monarch photos. If you like this podcast, please leave a rating uh, so more people can find this content. I know I'm not the best at putting podcasts up these days because I have a full-on 9-to-5 job now, like, like, a, like a real adult now, so it's hard to find time. And really, the only reason I could get this one out is because I have COVID, which is not fun. But uh, I did get mandatory time off, so I, so I had time to put a podcast together. Um, otherwise, I'd just be going absolutely crazy right now, stuck in my apartment, which is exactly what I've been doing for the past six days. So there you go. I guess uh, the next episode will come out the next time I get COVID. <laughs> Kidding, of course. I will try to be better. Um, I know it's like super not acceptable to go for six months between podcasts, but... Uh, it is what it is for now. So just hang in there. Bear with me. I will get them out as time allows. But um, thanks for being patient with me and for your continued support of the podcast. All right, guys, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Little Yo Pod. I'm Laura Jackson. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in Yosemite.